just a reminder, here at That's So Chronic, we are dedicated to sharing personal stories. We are not advocating any type of treatment, therapy, procedure or intervention. Everyone is unique, so please seek professional medical advice before making any decisions for yourself or for others. Welcome to That's So Chronic, the podcast where I, Jess Bryan, interview some incredible people from around the world that are thriving and sometimes only just surviving with chronic illnesses, life-changing injuries and potentially disastrous diagnoses. Today I am chatting to Natalie Myers about her diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis, lupus and pericarditis. But excitingly, Natalie's mum, Dr. Laurie, is also joining us today. In this episode, we basically talk about everything. Natalie and Dr. Laurie take us through Natalie's diagnosis of RA when she was a freshman in high school, the eventual diagnosis of pericarditis and lupus, what it was like growing up being the one who always puked on family car trips, the challenges that come with chronic illness, and why it's important to advocate for yourself or for your child. And of course, Dr. Laurie also shares some funny moments of Natalie's childhood with all of us as well. What I love about this podcast is that I get to chat to so many different people and share their unique patient stories. Natalie is the first to recognize that not everyone has the privilege of having a doctor for a mum. But Dr. Laurie has been there throughout Natalie's health journey, so we thought why not share and celebrate this part of her story today. Welcome to That's So Chronic. Natalie, welcome. You are living with a diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, and pericarditis, which we're going to chat all about today. But we are also excitingly joined by your mum, Dr. Laurie. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, excited to be here. Now, you are a doctor yourself, Laurie, but you have also been with Natalie throughout this whole journey. So I'm really excited to get your perspective on how everything went down as well. But Natalie, shall we start all the way at the beginning? When did rheumatoid arthritis into your life? You're a freshman in college, around 14 years old. When did this all start? Yeah, so I remember joint pain as young as 10 or 11. And I do think it onset early into high school and started noticing a lot of joint pain fatigue, nausea and vomiting, which I thought to be was normal. Thought everyone else struggled to, you know, use their hands or had to take naps throughout the day. Um, But it was really my mom who noticed something was wrong and pushed for testing and pushed for you know, finding an explanation to why I was feeling the way I was feeling. And I just thought it was normal. And I was a stubborn teenager who didn't want to believe anything was wrong with me. But it was really my mom. So I think I'll let her explain kind of that diagnostic process and what symptoms she was seeing in me. Yeah. How did that go? Well, thank you, Natalie. I, you know, honestly, it's really hard as a mom, because unfortunately, when your child has something that just repetitively occurs, you start to think, even as a physician, I started to think that that was just Natalie and it, and her abnormal became our normal, which was really kind of odd, even for a doctor to dismiss symptoms in your child, because you really don't know what it is. I mean, it was commonplace that everywhere we went, 
we had to carry a bucket because Natalie got sick so often and threw up everywhere that we just, we thought, oh, okay, well, can you guys reach that bucket? Because I was driving. So then I would ask her siblings, can you guys grab her bucket? And they got used to the routine where I'll hold her hair. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it just, yeah, it became our normal that we just expected it to happen because it happened so often. But I think with the joint pain, started to see a little bit more of a concern. For sure. How long were these symptoms going on before you were like, hang on, we need to really like go and investigate this? Well, I think what turned the corner was that we took her on a trip with us to Brazil. Okay. And we were walking back to the hotel and she at 14 said, I can't walk to the hotel, mommy. I can't walk. And uh, you know, and having to take naps throughout the day, even on our trip, even though it was very relaxing, we didn't really, you and I just hung out during the day um, yeah. while my husband was at a conference. So it, it really seemed to be that she became more and more fatigued. And one day I had to carry her back to the hotel up a hill on my back. I, I was I a small 14 year old, but that... <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but I'm sure that was odd because I was thinking, I can't carry her. We didn't have a car. We didn't have any way to get back. We're in a country where I don't speak the language. There's no way for me to get a ride back to the hotel. So I had to carry her back. And that happened, I must say, more than once. So we would walk somewhere, not very far, just a couple blocks, but she couldn't walk back. And so that's when we came back to where we lived. And you know, I was fortunately connected to the medical system where I had one of my colleagues see her who then started some testing. And before that, we tended to, even as a physician, I tended to dismiss her symptoms. Well, her hip hurts. Well, she fell off of her pony. Yeah. You know, she was in a lot of activities and her shoulders sore. Her hands are sore, but she had a lot of homework to do. And so it was easy to find a reason that she was having symptoms, even though the other kids didn't complain of that. So, you know, and the other kids were involved in a lot of similar activities. And so I think... Finally, the carrying her around got to be, <laughs> okay, we need to look into this. Um, yeah, because she she just absolutely couldn't walk. And and at home, even when we got back, she couldn't climb a flight of stairs to go to her bedroom on the second floor. That one of the other kids was carrying her up and down the steps constantly because the steps were just too hard for her to walk. And what was the diagnosis process like? Natalie, can you remember what they were having to like test and check for? Yeah, so we did a blood test, which my mom can explain what the ANA test is, but that apparently was top of the charts. So they referred me to rheumatology, the um, specialist who oversees a lot of autoimmune conditions, and that's when they went through the diagnostic process to go with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. At the time, I was having a lot of more joint pain, and they were noticing deformities in my hands, so like my pinkies and my fingers were really different, like growing deformities, I guess is the best way to describe it. So that's when they decided to go with that and start doing biologics and treating it. And what was the next steps moving forward once they go, okay, this is what it is. It's rheumatoid arthritis. I truly, <laughs> you know, I was so young that I, I remember going through all of these steps of trying different drugs, but trying to recall all of the different drugs and treatments, I'm not sure. Mom, <laughs> do you want to explain? Yeah, we started, we basically tried everything. So the diagnostic process, fortunately, my colleague was astutely interested in her symptoms and took a very good history and did the appropriate testing, did x-rays, her hands, and, you know, figured out that she had some bony erosions and things like that. So 
the diagnosis kind of got jump-started that way, mm-hmm. thanks to her. We had, as you can imagine, a, a wait, a little bit of a wait, even though we got an urgent referral to rheumatology. I think it was a good three months before yeah. Natalie saw somebody. Okay. And then there were more tests and more diagnostic process. And Natalie will tell you, we, her whole life has been testing and diagnostic process. It's continual. Less stops. <laughs> yeah, which some of them I found very entertaining. Natalie didn't really think no. it was so funny, but um, <laughs> I thought some were very good. Um, the way Natalie handles it was also incredibly entertaining. Natalie's a really funny person. And so her amazement at how tests work and things like that were was very entertaining for me. So we, we found humor as a way to get through it. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure it was not as funny for Natalie as it was for me. No. Especially um, at that. But and the poor thing, you know, and, and we have Natalie has a lot of siblings and we have a very busy household, especially with teenagers. But they all were very much on board with supporting Natalie and every one of them weighed in because she was on multiple medications. She had to get shots every week or every other week. And the siblings would volunteer to give the shots, would remind her that she needed them, would chase around the house to give them to her. And so, you know, we had the whole thing on board with her treatment and the treatment was not easy. She had a lot of different medications she started with biologics, went from one biologic to the next. She started with Enbrel and then Humira, and then finally landed with Arencia with an increased dose. So oh, before that too, before the biologics. Yes. Well, she was on prednisone for six months. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Which, you know, that in and of itself can be difficult to do. And um, I think that, you know, like I said, the family was very supportive. We all got very much used to... Natalie. But then as her diagnosis unfolded, a lot of things unique to Natalie started to make sense. A lot of kids with autoimmune disorders don't grow very big. And Natalie will probably be the first one to tell you that we called her midget her whole life. She's, Natalie's not a tall person. So. I'm not a big person. I'm five feet tall. <laughs> On a good day. <laughs> She's petite, and which made it easier to care. But um, she's petite. She's never been a very good eater ever since she's been small. She just has difficulty eating probably because of reflux and things like that. And so it, it a lot of things, like I said, especially unique to Natalie, all kind of started to make sense. But the one unique thing about Natalie is that she has true grit and she has grace and she handled everything, no matter what it was. my colleagues would tell me she has to have this and this. And I would say, Natalie, we got to do this and you got to have a scope and you got, okay. (laughs) I mean, no matter what it was, I would just flat out tell her what it was and she would just buck it up and do it. Wow. That's so helpful though. You know, a lot of people don't have their mom doctor to explain to them what tests they're going to do and what, you know, drugs we're going to try next and what the doctors are thinking. And so I was just so fortunate to have somebody explain it to me that I didn't feel worried going into that process is because I had someone there the whole time. Yeah. Well, and I was always very honest with her, you know, mm-hmm. she would say, is it going to hurt? And I'd say, yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> but it'll be okay because we'll get through it. And then she'd go, okay. <laughs> I mean, so I think having someone to to advocate for her but also to give her the straight story um mm-hmm. i think was really and a lot of the credit goes to her because she truly she would comply with anything they would ask her to do and that made it hard for me as a doctor and as a mom to put the brakes on 
when someone wanted to do something that I didn't think was safe or reasonable or needed. Yeah, I think I've already decided that I would like a little mini Dr. Laurie just to put in my pocket, please, to come with (laughs) me to all of my appointments. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You call me. I will say, "Mm, I don't know, but that doesn't sound right. (laughs) (laughs) Or I would preload you with questions. I would say, you go back and you ask them this, this, and this. Yeah. (laughs) Speaking of having someone to explain things, if someone is listening to the podcast and they have absolutely no idea what rheumatoid arthritis is, how would you describe what it is? I can give my layman's term explanation and then I will allow the professional to take over. (laughs) But rheumatoid arthritis is when your immune system attacks your joint linings, your joint cells, something of that nature. And causes inflammation, which can eventually cause bone erosion, um, deformities, and joint pain, for sure. Mm -hmm. Professional? A very wonderful explanation, Natalie. Thank you. She's absolutely correct. It's it's kind of the body's immune system, which is meant to fight off invaders, starts to recognize its own tissue as an invader. And so an immune response is mounted against your very own tissue. And truth be told, science doesn't know why. We don't know what causes it. We don't know why it starts, how it starts. Um, And we're doing our best. I say that as my collective profession. But science and medicine is trying to do the best they can to stop the progression of the disease. It's pretty well known that there is no cure for the disease. We don't know the cause of the disease. And someday that may unfold. I take care of patients that are generations older than Natalie that have gone through the progression of medical knowledge for these autoimmune inflammatory conditions. And Natalie has the benefit of the most up-to-date current technology that a lot of my patients didn't have. So I think as time unfolds, more and more opportunities for treatment will come along. And I think that's very optimistic and very hopeful. Yeah. But it is, it's, it's um, similar to a lot of other diseases that we just truly don't know the cause of at this point. Yeah. You mentioned that your family was really supportive of you, Natalie, throughout this process. How did you find school, being a teenager and having to navigate schooling while you're also, you know, dealing with a pretty big diagnosis? Yeah, I definitely think that was the most challenging part is being, you know, 14, 15, which is a hard age in high school in general. It's just a hard time. I mean, people are mean. There's a lot of social changes. You're trying to find out who you are. And for me to have a chronic illness during that was excruciatingly difficult, not only for my peers, for my teachers, from the administration, especially my peers, though I think didn't fully understand it. And it was made very obvious who the three chronically ill kids in school were. Yeah. Two other very sweet girls who are still friends of mine. But it was known that we had chronic illnesses and our diseases were often pitted against each other. One one girl had EDS, and so the hyperflexibility of her joints causing her joints to dislocate. Um, She also had a lot of joint pain, and so that's what my peers understood, is that we both had joint pain, so why could she come to class but I couldn't? Or why could, you know, she get this homework assignment done or go to this social outing but I couldn't? Uh, Or vice versa. So that's always really hard to understand, and I think... You know, I struggled with teachers, and my mom went to bat for me multiple times with teachers who made me handwrite notes or 
wouldn't provide extended extended time accommodations for classes or I think my junior year of high school so when I was 16 or 17 I missed like 80 some days out of the 100 some school year and you know they try to send me to truancy (laughs) court which is not fun um because I was missing for infusions for doctor's appointments for diagnostic testing and that made it difficult. It made it difficult to have a normal high school experience, I would say. And as a mum, I can only imagine that watching Natalie go through that when you just want the best for your daughter and to see her having to miss so much school, that must also have been challenging, I suppose. Oh, absolutely. And I can't tell you how many times I had to march into the school and have a discussion with both the principal and a misguided teacher. And Truth be told, they didn't understand. They would say, well, I just can't figure. I had a teacher actually tell me, how could your 15-year-old have arthritis? That, I think that's ridiculous. Yeah. And so it, it was a lot of education. It was also a lot of advocation that she will not be doing that. And it, it got down to a crisis where Natalie had to have a physical education credit to graduate. Mm. And the education teacher insisted that she run a mile and that she also had to row a canoe for an eight mile trip. And I said, she can't do that. And I think the way that we worked it out, honestly, is they let Natalie ride in the boat and her sister rode. I was gonna say, my, sis- my sister joined. So I could. I made my sister do it. And then her poor sister, Jessica, was like, okay, well, whatever you want me to do, mom. And so Jessica got credit for it, Natalie got credit for it, and Natalie got to sit in the boat. But it was un imaginable the inflexibility of these teachers they truly did not understand and had we had more time and energy we would have you know really pressed that she was being disadvantaged because of a disability or her medical condition was causing her to be discriminated against but who has time for that nor did we want to create a label in the high school yeah um and now i just tell a funny story but oh no you you guys I know. Natalie's like, oh no. But one year, Natalie and her two friends were getting ready to go, I think, to homecoming or something like that. And they're just absolutely drop dead gorgeous girls. And the one has Erler's Danlos. <laughs> Natalie has her slash lupus. And the other girl, I think, had Crohn's disease. And they're just beautiful girls. And we have boys in our family. And so they all came in, they were all getting ready. And the kids were telling, the boys were telling their dad, whoa, did you guys see those hot girls in the kitchen? And we're like, no, don't touch them. Five feet from them at all times, they're immunosuppressed. I mean, between the two of us, we're like, no, no, off limits. Those girls are not for you. Those are, they're just going to have a dance. They're not to date. Don't touch them. <laughs> Both of us are like, no. And, you know, I think that was the same homecoming where, you know, I am a chronic puker, unfortunately. It's just something about me. And it, it's gotten better. But I've always been a puker and I puked at this homecoming and the, I think it was the principal that thought I was intoxicated uh-huh. and was yep. trying to get me in trouble for being intoxicated. I was like, no, I just had my infusion. I'm just nauseous. I'm still trying to go yep. to homecoming, have a normal high school experience. But, Oh yeah, you know. that was a phone call for a parent about how my daughter was invited at homecoming and we basically just told the principal, let her brother bring her home. Yeah. Just, and, you know, and the boys would just put her in the back of the car, bring her home, soaked in, in her dress room and everything. And I said, what happened? Oh, she got sick, mom. We brought her home. Okay, see ya. 
<laughs> they're going back to the dance. They did their due diligence and dropped her back off. But it was, it was um, an invalid conclusion by an ignorant adult, um, which yeah. made it even more difficult for her. She was already mortally embarrassed that the oh, dance yeah. had not gone well, didn't feel well. So we've, we've had several of that. And, and I, I would say to the siblings credit, they were always 100% protective and very helpful for us as parents in keeping a watchful eye when we weren't there. Yeah. And then, of course, another diagnosis enters your life with lupus. Yeah. So I will, you know, caveat this with my mom always thought it was lupus. She thought it was just joint involvement with lupus. And the RA was, you know, an easy diagnosis for the rheumatologist at the time. But, you know, your mom knows best. (laughs) Well, I would just say she just had the classic symptoms and the lab patterns that she had. Her very initial lab was classic for lupus. Can you explain what an ANA is, mom? Yeah, so anti-nuclear, anti-nuclear antibody is a, and I'm not a rheumatologist, so forgive my lack of specialty expertise, but um, the ANA was positive above and beyond all her other serologic markers, and that typically is classic for a lupus-like syndrome, but the problem was the rheumatologist thought that she was too young, that 15-year-olds don't get lupus, because at the time, 12 years ago or whatever, there was very limited understanding of how these patients present. And it was considered to be a 40-year-old woman um, or so, 40 to 60-year-old women. And we don't even know, the other thing that she um, used as a reason to negate the diagnosis is we don't have a family history. But we now know there's no family history link classically. There can be um, a link among family members, but just because a person does not have a family history doesn't mean they don't have the condition. Yeah. So it's a lot of negatives strung together. But she just had classic symptoms and the ambiguity of her presentation made it look more like lupus. And then, you know, she had the other manifestations. Her pericarditis actually occurred before her lupus diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And she had EKG changes, which were classic for lupus. And they still, all my colleagues told me, it's not lupus. So, yeah. And I teach at the College of Medicine. I taught at the College of Medicine at Ohio State. So I was very used to teaching disease syndromes to medical students. And so Natalie had a very classic presentation, Um, which, you know, to Natalie's credit, both my husband and I have advocated for her to the point where Natalie got sick and I was out of town at a conference. I was in Dallas. And my husband had to take her to the emergency room with chest pain and shortness of breath and difficulty breathing. And my poor husband, he's a veterinarian. He's Googling her symptoms and made her diagnosis at the bedside and tried to encourage the ER doctor that that was what was wrong with her, but they they didn't believe that that was the problem. But truth be told, she did have pericarditis at the time. Yeah, I was going to say, is, th- is that the pericarditis when that was diagnosed? That's how it started. So that's 2017. Um, and then they, you know, officially treated it in 2022. So this year. Wow. COVID had something to do with that. Okay. Despite our ultimate efforts to protect Natalie from COVID. I mean, we basically put her in saran wrap and masked her from head to toe. Yeah. But... I mean, Jess got you know, COVID too recently. Recently, yeah. Oh god. Yeah. Also so with Paxlovid. Yeah, a couple of yeah. months ago. Yeah. So, and COVID can cause pericarditis. COVID can cause myocarditis, which is an inflammation of the heart muscle yeah. itself. So, 
like I said, despite our best efforts, she did have an episode of acute COVID. And I think that may have had something to do with it. Although I think she had uh, pericarditis before she got the COVID. Okay, yep. Yeah. So, but I guess that yeah, just helped yeah. speed up the diagnosis process a little bit. It made it show up on an MRI a little yeah. bit easier. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately. That plus your mother raising a fit while you're in the emergency room. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was part of it. There's a little yeah. bit of upper tantrum that has to go in there. <laughs> well, I think that's just a part of being a young female, too. It's like it takes a lot of effort for our opinions and our concerns to be heard. So it helps when your mom is also pushing for that. Yeah. yeah. So how did, when did someone say, okay, yes, we think this is lupus? 2021, I was okay. in my new rheumatologist, because I live in D.C. now, so not my children's rheumatologist, but my adult rheumatologist, suspected it, threw it out there, and we're like, yeah, that's what we've been thinking since I was 15. He's like, yeah, we'll see. He's like, I would need another marker or some evidence, evidence to prove that it's lupus, which is interesting, but we'll leave it at that. And so when we got the pericarditis, evidence on the MRI in 2022. Mm -hmm. I don't know. There was a little evidence in it in 2021, but very, very strongly in 2022, that's when they pushed um, for the full diagnosis of both the diseases. And I think that's the case with all autoimmune diseases is like, they think it's that, they suspect it for years and years. And then, you know, years later, you finally get the diagnosis, even though you've had the same symptoms and same condition for a long time now. And that's really interesting because when I was doing some research on lupus, what was coming up quite a lot was that it can mimic a lot of other conditions as well, which can make <laughs> it really difficult to diagnose. Yeah. Is there a different or yeah, I guess is there a different treatment plan that you can go down to help manage your symptoms now that this condition has the title of lupus? Yeah, so I think so. My rheumatologist seems to think so, that there can be other drugs that are specifically lupus-based drugs than RA-based drugs. So Plaquenil or hydroxychloroquine, for example, is one that I'm on now that in combination with the Orencia, which is an RA drug, is supposed to combat both diseases, but there's apparently a new class that just are lupus drugs. Well, I think part of in my advocation process, I think part of the knowledge of thinking more toward the lupus diagnosis is prevention of complications. Now that we're aware that this is a potential, being very proactive in cardiac protection, cerebral protection, all the other things, kidney protection, it's not just joints anymore. Uh, lupus can ravage other organs. And so we do want to protect her joints, but RA really doesn't attack other systems. And so I think it's really important to make the diagnosis clear. Um, and one of my prior conversations with her rheumatologist, I would have to kind of confess up that sometimes one of the privileges of being a physician is you can request a physician to physician consult. Even if I'm the physician and her, her rheumatologist is a physician, I just requested a consultation. And so I got to speak I get to speak to her care providers often um, because of that privilege. And so one of his answers to me about a year and a half ago was that, well, she really doesn't have lupus, so I don't think we need to use this drug, that drug. So now that this picture is becoming more clear, I think he may be more open to additional options for treatment. 
as well as involving additional specialty providers in her care. Um, she previously did not have a cardiologist. She, you know, does not at this point, hopefully, need a nephrologist or have one. But, you know, there are a lot of specialties that will need to be coordinating care to keep her well. Yeah. And I think because I'm in an older generation of physicians, I see the younger generation that's very soloed in on their out. You know, cardiologists will only take care of the heart, kidney specialists, and rightfully so, but no one's watching the big picture. Yeah. No one's driving the ship. And so that's my job is that I'm, yeah, okay. I'm the ultimate driver of the ship because it's my baby, <laughs> first of all. Yeah. But I also help direct her providers. And Natalie will tell you that when she's in trouble, i.e. she went to the ER, that I will say, let me talk to them. Yeah. Because she'll tell me what they're doing. And I'll say, uh, let me put them on the phone. Yeah. And so then I will say, you need to do this. And let's not scare the kids. So don't tell them that we're worried about a retinal artery occlusion. But I want you to do a CT scan before you send her home because this is a don't miss diagnosis in this person. This child needs to be, she's not a child anymore, but this patient needs to be cleared before you send her home. And then Natalie's like, it's amazing, mom. You talk to them and all of a sudden they sent me the CAT scan. Like it, this, where I'm like, hey, I think we should explore this option. You know, I lost vision in one. I've never done that before. Like we should, you know, look and make sure. They're like, no, you're fine. My mom calls them like, we're rushing you right now. We're going. Yeah, or wow. even just by default. So Natalie's talking to me on the phone. I can see her cardiac monitor behind her head. And so I'm watching it and reading it as she's talking. Natalie, let me talk to your doctor. She's like, oh, okay, okay. This is my mom on the phone. They're like, your mom? I'm like, you guys need to run mag. I just saw four PBCs in a row. She's This kid's going into trouble. You need to check her potassium and run some magnesium. The next thing she calls me for the room. They hung this IV, mom. <laughs> but they don't tell me yeah. this. They don't tell me, hey, yeah. this is what we saw. They're like, nope, your mom just said to do it. We're doing it. I can see from the IV pole they're running IV magnesium at the correct rate. So I do have some oversight that maybe a not a lot of parents yeah. would be able to do. And I, I am very grateful that I have a gift of education and experience and knowledge that as a physician, I can protect my daughter. Yeah. Not everyone may be able to do that. And I've, I've needed to do that over and over again. I was just telling Natalie about it was so nerve wracking for me to send her to college yeah. because and I'm not, and Natalie would tell you, I'm not necessarily a helicopter parent. Hands off. Everything other than medical, she's completely hands off. Okay. <laughs> Unless I need her. I do. But medical, she's like, no. As far as she knows, I'm hands off. <laughs> I do have a behind the scenes awareness that she doesn't know about, but I let her try to think that she's like, totally all <laughs> around. But she went to college and that was very worrisome for me because I wouldn't, and so her roommate called me and said she had a fever and a headache and wouldn't wake up and she's on biologics and she's in a dorm and she's immunosuppressed and she was, this is her freshman year. So she's for the first time exposed to multitudes of pathogens yeah. and bacteria. So I couldn't get a hold of the RA, the resident advisor in the dorm. I couldn't get a hold of the school nurse. So I had to call security to go in her room, check on her. And she was kind of groggy and out of it. And they, someone took her to the emergency department and the ER doctor said, oh, yeah, she's a kid. She's got a sinus infection. I said, no, no, no. You need to image her head. She might have meningitis. She might have an abscess. And so she ended up with a CAT scan. 
but it was me tracking down where she went, mm-hmm. calling the ER doctor, physician to physician consult, requesting and demanding that they treat her differently than a regular 20 year old. So it's a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> but she's my baby. Yeah, of yeah. course. And then you have to let her go. I mean, you know, you let her go be an adult. And she ran off and got married. So, yeah. <laughs> and Laurie, does it get any easier the older Natalie gets? Um, I'm hoping, well, I always worry about her the same. The older she gets, I am very proud to say that the more self-determined and the more self-sufficient she gets, she has grown into her own. And I'm very proud of her. Um, She's always been tough, but now she has confidence that she didn't have as a teenager. And I'm hoping that as she understands herself and her disease, that I role model for her how to advocate for herself. Because I told her yesterday, if I go somewhere and I, if I die, you got to learn how to do this by yourself. <laughs> Worst conversation ever. <laughs> like, okay, my husband's got to go to medical school. He's got to learn all this stuff. He's done a great job of figuring out my diseases and managing my medications. But yeah. He really has stepped up to the plate. And Natalie, can I tell her just a little tiny bit? Go ahead. Go ahead. We love, we love him. We did not know her husband well before they got married. And so we were very nervous because we're handing off our baby that we've worked so hard to protect to someone else who now has legal authority over her, which made us all, made us all cry. <laughs> made me cry. Made her, made my husband cry. But, um, he has turned out to be the most wonderful man. He is absolutely a gem. He's a total sweetheart. He adores her from the moon and back. And he absolutely, we feel confident that he will take care of her for us and that he will do absolutely everything he can for her. And so we feel a little less nervous about them being married. And he just organized a lupus walk a couple of weekends ago. How did that go? It was so great. So I will, you know, explain this. He had no idea what lupus was when we first started dating. He had no idea what any of my ailments were. And I don't even think he was really aware that I had these. Yeah. But as quickly as... It was a good secret. I know. I kept it a secret. (laughs) I don't talk about it publicly a lot. But he quickly educated himself on all the diseases, any interactions, things we need to be aware of. You know, he helps me monitor my diet, my exercise, making sure I'm getting enough sleep. He monitors my social battery, as we call it, which is, you know, anyone with chronic illness does not have the same social stamina as regular people will call it. But he did. He just organized the Lupus Walk in D.C. for the Lupus Foundation. He raised a couple thousand dollars and, like, brought all my friends. His family came into town, which was so great. And it was, it was lovely. It was great to see that sign of support. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Before we carry on with the interview, I wanted to quickly jump in and say thank you for listening to this episode and to ask you a super quick favor. The way that podcasting works is that every rating on Spotify and review over on Apple Podcasts really helps spread the word and get That So Chronic into more ears around the world. So if you have a moment and you don't mind, I would love for you to quickly leave a rating or a review so the internet gods know that people are enjoying the show. You will also be my favorite. Thank you so much much for listening and supporting. All right, back to the interview. I want to circle back a little bit because I'm really interested when we were talking about how 
Laurie, you're kind of having to be this overarching person that can help monitor the different sort of specialists that Natalie has to see. In New Zealand, that is done a lot by the GP or a general practitioner. So they're some could call the gatekeepers to specialists, which can have its own issues in itself. But they are also the people that are kind of watching your care. How does that work with the American healthcare system? Because I understand that obviously there are a lot of differences between the ways that we operate. I'm interested in hearing a little bit more about that. Yeah, so just first and foremost, I don't think my specialists talk and communicate with one another. Like for example, my cardiologist thinks my pericarditis is a rheumatology issue and my rheumatologist okay. thinks the cardiology issue. And so there's a lot of disconnect here. And so we do have primary care providers that do step in. And I have one, but, you know, my mom is really the the driving force between making sure that, you know, any medications one prescribes is, you know, talking to the other and won't affect the other. Okay. But I'll let her explain that in the American medical system way. Well, the American medical system um, works almost the same way. I mean, primary care is the gatekeeper in a Um, Patients can be seen by specialists, but the primary care, most of the time, the insurance company will require a primary care referral. Okay. Natalie, for a while, did not have primary care just because they were so short supplied that she couldn't really get into one. So she finally was able to publish with one. And it was a similar situation where Natalie went for her first first visit and she called me. I said, put her on the phone. I'll just tell her how to write the notes. I'll just give her all of the keywords, all of the abbreviations. I'll just get it done now. We've only got 30 minutes. Let me me just fill her in here. (laughs) It is a lot of background and a lot of history that if I, you know, provide it to a doctor, they're kind of set back by it. Like I went to the um, gastroenterologist the other week and I went through just my GI history, which is like a little subsect of my medical history. And she was just a little wide-eyed and just, really, that happened and that happened. Did you have this procedure? Yep, and this year. And she just, you know, I think it's unnerving maybe or just not what they're used to when you go in for a first visit. But that is a challenge too for PCPs. Yeah, I've been nicknamed a professional patient when I've had to go (laughs) in and see new people with all of my things. Oh, yeah. With all your notes, you're like ready to go. And I'm like, and it's written down that it was my right eye in 2014, but it was actually my left eye. So just need to be all over that. <laughs> hey, but it's to your benefit to be a professional patient mm-hmm. because yeah. not, no one else is going to keep track of the data like you. And it doesn't mean anything to anyone else like it means to you. Yeah. Um, and the problem with Natalie, and you may have experienced this as well, is that you don't look like the disease mm-hmm. because sometimes healthcare providers have such a bias as to what a patient with lupus or what a patient with RA or what a patient with MS should look like. And you guys are young, cute girls. You don't look like the disease. And so uh, it's it gets to a point where the bias becomes a believability problem, yeah. where Natalie's symptoms are not taken for real because she doesn't look like she would have that problem. And so then I think the conclusion of the provider is they're making it up or it's not real. and Or it's anxiety, which my pericarditis yeah. was said to be anxiety multiple times. And I was put on anti-anxieties and antidepressants instead. Which 
I mean, truthfully, having a long-standing chronic disease with multiple symptoms can cause depression or anxiety. Absolutely. The, the medical mill that Natalie has been through with the multiple procedures and pain and suffering just from the medical procedures themselves can cause anxiety. I understand that, but that's not the reason that she has the problem. Of EKG changes or palpitations or passing out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, her GI history is the most humorous of her entire <laughs> her entire workup. <laughs> I mean, she had to swallow a pill, which we all thought was hilarious. So we had to wait for it to come oh, yeah. out. And <laughs> it was her GI upper scope, lower scope. Those were all, we tried to make those much more. Barium swallow, your personal oh, favorite. It was absolutely hilarious. They gave her chocolate milkshake with barium in it. Do we you know what a barium swallow is? No. You can watch it go all down. Natalie, drink some water. Go down again. (laughs) Let me explain it. (laughs) So they make you swallow. You're on an x-ray. And they're trying to see if you have blockages in your, like, esophagus or stomach. So they make you swallow radioactive material. And they, like, make it, try to make it taste like a milkshake. It doesn't. But my mom was in the room just watching me swallow. And she was seeing me, like, gulp and then, like, it go down. And she thought it was so funny. Just cracking up the entire time. Well, you could tell you could tell that this chocolate milkshake was not really a chocolate milkshake. And this poor kid is doing her absolute best. And she's going, gulp, gulp. And her, like, eyes are watering. Like, Trying not to throw it back up. I, perhaps it's a little bit of, if you don't laugh, you'll cry. Yes. Yeah. It is, for sure. Absolutely. For sure. I guess this leads quite perfectly into chatting a little bit about mental health. I know from my own experience that it can take a real toll uh, being diagnosed with an autoimmune chronic illness. Natalie, how have you found your mental health throughout this process? Oh, that's a great question. It's always a roller coaster. It's never like, you know happy and sunshine there are some moments where it really gets to me that there is no cure for this and it's only going to progressively get worse it's hard not to get into that mindset and think you know there's really no out there's always going to be chronic pain there's always going to be organ system issues gi issues whatever you have it these are only going to develop further and it's really really challenging for me not to be depressed about that and it's I'm not gonna say I have the answer I'm nowhere close to that because it's definitely a struggle but you know I think you know my husband my mom always say it's we're trying to live as long as we can for as healthy as we can if I just keep that mindset that it's that's the goal it definitely helps but having that support system is so crucial yeah Laurie, do you have a support system to help you navigate having to watch your daughter go through all of this as well? Um, my stepdad? <laughs> yes. Yes. My husband is a tremendous support and yeah. he is one, Natalie is his daughter, um, yeah. you know, and they are bonded and he has been such a trooper. Poor Natalie was hospitalized at Children's Hospital with um, tonsillitis and was very sick and I couldn't go. And so he took her to the emergency room. He was in the hospital room with her and they had, it was a children's hospital. So they had this little mobile above the bed with lights and music and little twinkling sounds and things like that. And I called Natalie, I said, how are you feeling? You know, she calls my husband, grandpa. I said, is grandpa there with you? And she's like, yeah, he's snoring on the couch. <laughs> he, liked, he loved a mobile so much that he just went to sleep. Um, but he has been a true soldier for her and advocated for her and, you know, willing to go to bat for her, willing to, he's 
a PhD yeah. as well. So he pulled up research on pericarditis, myocarditis. Every time she's on a medication, he researches it. Mm -hmm. He is a absolute guardian for her and for you well he's my guard dog for sure but you know for <laughs> you <laughs> but I think the rest of her siblings have been with her through thick and thin I mean helping to for her to navigate through school with a broken ankle helping her to get up and down stairs helping her to fix her car helping her to go places I think they have really gone above and beyond what we've asked them to do I mean it was hard mm -hmm. enough sometimes for everyone to volunteer to sit next to her, knowing she was going to throw up in the car. <laughs> but they would just took turns holding the bucket, all that. I think, Natalie, and if, I think it's really important. She has found some supportive friends. Yeah. Sometimes friends can be mixed in their mm -hmm. support versus not support, on board, not on board. And I think that's what actually has been probably challenging for Natalie. They don't understand. Yeah. Or so they chalk my, my, you know, fatigue up to flakiness. And if I don't show up for plans, if I have to reschedule. And so that's been really hard. I do think I have a good group of friends now. Yeah. And yeah. some good chronically ill friends. <laughs> Along the way, it has, it's not always been easy. You know, some things were not understood, you know, especially sorority life and college life. And then early mm -hmm professional career. Fortunately, Maddie's yeah. been very lucky that her employers have always been supportive. She has not most of them <laughs> that I know of. She has not yes. really had to suffer professionally because of her disease. She's been able to get her infusions during work time because mm -hmm. who can go do your infusion at nine o'clock on a Saturday? You know, nobody. Yeah. So and medical yeah. and I think that has been very helpful. Um, and trying to manage friends' expectations. I think she's done very well with that, but I know that's not always easy. No, it's not. Yeah, it makes all the difference having people in your corner. Yeah, and I yes. work-wise too is, you know, I've had some employers that you may not remember, Mom, but some employers that if I missed hours for my infusions or for doctor's appointments, I had to make up those hours elsewhere, which is just not feasible as a young adult or just as a person. But now my employer is just, they're incredible. And my team is great. And so much so that my, my supervisor, when I joined her team, she advanced enough leave, like sick leave for me to get all my infusions every year. And then multiple doctor's appointments every month. And she's just made sure she calculated out how much leave that would need to be and make sure I have enough so it's never a question. Mm -hmm. And my colleagues are great at making sure, you know, did I cover anything or if I don't feel well, they'll tell me to go take a nap, which is just, it's unheard of. And I don't think, you know, in our American work system, that's something to be expected, but it's, it's a blessing. Yeah. So moving forward, we're now in 2022. What does life look like for you managing these conditions and also with your management plan? How does a day-to-day -day life look for you? Yeah. So managing with my medications, of course, I try to work out. I try to do like some exercise because it's good for me while well, my heart allows it yeah. <laughs> and my fatigue allows and it. And not putting wear and tear on your joints. That's yeah. the one thing that when we first started down this journey, she was told she just needed to work out more and mm -hmm. then she wasn't fit. She's very muscular. She is very fit. And 
the misconception with rheumatoid arthritis is that exercise helps. It does to a point, but keep in mind, these are joints that are inflamed and being damaged. And so exercise puts more wear and tear. And her physical therapy that she was given in high school was not really helpful because her joints were so tender and so inflamed. I think it actually caused more damage than help. So, I mean, weeding through the advice as far as what's helpful, what's not, keeping her safe from secondary problems like COVID. You know, I watch out for her and the minute something's wrong, I jump in to fix it, whether her care team's on board or not. Yeah. I mean, she had antivirals within the first 24 hours that we knew she had COVID. Yeah. <laughs> and, and nobody else would do that. I mean, that's just a gift I have. But, yeah. you know, I think, like I said, she has a guardian um, yeah. that I'm happy to fill that role. But I think protecting her future is one of the biggest priorities and not allowing a medical misjudgment to cause additional harm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've made mistakes in my medical history too, where that have done harm, you know, different drugs that have caused adverse symptoms or, you know, permanent damage have never, never recovered from is something that we, need to be like be super cautious of when we change anything or if I do anything differently lifestyle wise can make a huge difference. Even something as simple as Natalie goes to a specialist, she gets prescribed a medication, she tells me I'm taking this and this. And I say, Oh, hold up, that's not the right dose. Mm-hmm. They miscalculated because they gave you the same it's weight based dosing and they gave you a dose for a two hundred pound man yeah. or a hundred pound girl. And so they were she was double dosed on a medication that caused some toxic side effects. And if she didn't have me to say she's very compliant, she'll gulp down anything you give her, (laughs) no matter what it is. She's, I mean, and most patients are like that, but they don't have the forethought to say, this is not the right dose of this drug. Mm -hmm. Whether the cardiologist didn't calculate correctly or not, I don't know, but I have the awareness and actually it was my husband that picked it up. That's not the right dose. Yeah. So we don't blindly follow everyone's recommendations. We uh, read it out, for mm-hmm. lack of a better term, and then we give her advice. Which because... not everyone has the luxury to do, I will point out. Yeah. And it can be so exhausting just having to keep on top of like checking. Like I know when I get uh, prescribed a new medicine, I'm always like, can you check that I can take that with this medication that I take in the evenings? And, you know, my neurologist says that it's okay, but then I'm like, well, I'm going to have to go and check with the pharmacist as well because I have trust issues (laughs) (laughs) with this whole system. (laughs) Yeah, you're rightfully you're rightfully right to, you're correct to do so. I mean, because you want the best for you and not everyone may be aware of what else is going on. Yeah. Yeah. It's the professional patient in me. (laughs) Yes. There you go. (laughs) And so symptoms wise, Natalie, how do you, what, what do you experience in 2022? Yeah. And we did not go into the details of my diseases. I'm happy to do so, but symptom wise, it's still the joint pain. It's still the fatigue, joint stiffness, I would mm-hmm. say, and the feeling that my hands give out. I uh, historically have always been this, so much so that my mom had plastic plates for me at home because I dropped our glass plates and too much. So she finally just got plastic. Um, they were my plates because they're just lighter. I wouldn't drop them. So aside from that, the lupus is... 
whatever organ it decides to attack is the symptoms that I'll have. So whether that be my heart for the pericarditis or myocarditis, that could be chest pain, that could be vision loss, palpitations, dizzy, passing out, EKG changes, rhythm changes, fluttering, you name it. And then all the GI loveliness. <laughs> Could honestly talk to the both of you forever, but I am conscious of the time that I said it would only take an hour of your time. Mm-hmm. But so I guess my final question to both of you, I'm curious if you would have any piece of advice. If somebody's listening to this podcast and they're on a journey trying to find a diagnosis Natalie, if there's any advice that you would give them, and I guess, Laurie, if there's any parents who are listening that have their their child is going through something similar, if you would have any advice for them as well. Yeah, I think first and foremost is, you know, keep track of your symptoms. If you're noticing stuff that's wrong, keep track of how frequently they're occurring. I have a journal that I write these down with because then I go to that specialist and I'm able to point to, okay, I've had these conditions for 60 days. And that's very helpful, but also ask questions. If you don't understand anything, definitely ask questions, ask for second opinions. It never hurts, especially as a young female, you know, are we're often dismissed. And so I think asking those questions and asking for clarification, you know, asking for other options. So much so my rheumatologist gets to the point where he's like, Well, what do you think? What does what do you think about think? this? Which <laughs> Yeah, essentially what does your mom think? But also you know, what are your thoughts? And that's, that's yeah. helpful. That's yeah. what you need to get to. So definitely ask questions. From a parent perspective, I would encourage parents to advocate for your child. Um, they'll always be your child, no matter how old they are, even if they're an adult. But also ask questions, ask the specialist, ask the provider, how does this work? How does this help? Why do you think that this is the diagnosis. Explain to me, tell me about, but don't settle for less than knowledge. Be comfortable with the knowledge and push and advocate. It is the medical provider's job to make sure that the patient and the family understands either the treatment, the diagnosis, the investigation, the test, the evaluation, whatever it may be. It's our job to explain that. And so as a family or as a parent, you deserve an explanation. Open-ended questions are usually the best way to get the most information. Why do you think that? How? Who will take care of the pericarditis? Mm -hmm. If you're the cardiologist and you're not going to take care of it, then who? And it's sometimes perceived as, um, for what, Mm -hmm. Natalie? I mean, being pushy, right? (laughs) I'm trying to think of an adjective (laughs) that doctors have called me. (laughs) But it's, it's, Annoying. Whatever. However you want to label it, I'm fine with that. But you deserve those answers. And as a patient, you deserve the answers. But as a parent, Mm -hmm. sometimes the patient feels intimidated or, you know, your child feels intimidated asking the professional those questions. But you deserve an answer. And if you don't feel Mm -hmm. comfortable with what's going on, then you deserve an explanation. And, you know, one, a case in point, and I know we're short on time, but Natalie was given a medication that I wasn't 100% comfortable with it. And I had looked it up and it wasn't 100% safe. It had been tested in men, but had never been tested in young girls. And she was 18 at the time. And they gave it to her and she had a prolonged, Mm -hmm. severe reaction that I'm sure caused some permanent damage. And so 
we never had that medication again, but I, I trusted the professional to make that decision, even though I knew it wasn't quite safe. And so I think sometimes you can step into the role of saying, wait, wait, time out. I need to know that this is going to be okay. Asking for an explanation is probably the most important thing you can do for your child. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you both so much for sharing so much with me today. My hope is moving forward that by, I don't know, maybe 2030, we'll have the technology to have a little Dr. Laurie in our pockets. So that'll be perfect. We will. (laughs) You can download the app. It'll be AI, artificial intelligence. It'll go through your symptoms and tell you what's wrong with you and what you need to do. It's perfect. You like my words. I wish I wish I had invented it. But don't have it. <laughs> or my personal favorite is when you're you got a headache or whatever. She's like, oh, just just have a cookie. You're fine. Eat a banana. Go sit outside. Have a cookie. You're good. Hot chocolate. That's always helpful. Now we go get a donut. We'll be yeah. fine. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. There is some of that. There is some of that too. Awesome. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Very nice to meet you, Jess. Hey. Take care. Bye, Natalie. It probably comes as no surprise that I loved getting to chat to Natalie and Dr. Laurie, so I really hoped you enjoyed listening. If you did, maybe you know someone else who would enjoy this episode too. Feel free to share this episode with them or pop it on your Instagram stories to help spread the word. That reminds me, feel free to reach out over on social media. You can find me on Instagram and TikTok. I'm at That's So Chronic. Or you can find me behind the monthly newsletter over on Substack. As always, you can find the links to follow in the show notes. Don't forget to press that big old follow button if you're new around here. And I'll see you next week. Thank you for listening.